Thank you. It's a privilege to be with you today. I'm grateful for the opportunity to share. We are in the season of Lent, uh, the church calendar, which began on Ash Wednesday and continues through Easter Sunday. Now, I, for some of you, maybe the Lenten season is a very significant season in your walk with Christ. For others, am I getting an echo? Am I okay? Does that sound okay? All right. Uh, for others, maybe you don't, uh, it's not a meaningful time for you. In my own personal journey with the Lord, I've found it deeply meaningful to take these 40 days from Ash Wednesday through Easter Sunday to focus on the final week of the life of Christ and to really focus my heart and my soul and my mind on what takes place. As you know, uh, a vast majority of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are really focused on one week in the life of Christ. Over a third of Matthew, over a third of Mark, uh, a quarter of Luke, and almost half of the Gospel of John is really focused on the passion narratives, on the cross and the resurrection. And so um, my prayer is that as we center our lives today really on what I found to be very helpful during this time is to take some time during these, these six weeks of Lent to focus on what Jesus says as he hangs on the cross. And so the title of the sermon this morning is Listening to the Cross, and I pray we will listen. Would you pray with me as we begin? Lord, may the words of my mouth and may the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Lord, you are our rock and you're our Redeemer. Amen. When I was growing up, if my parents or my teachers or a coach said the phrase, listen up, you've heard that, listen up. That meant something important was about to be said, right? Listen up. I'm going to say something here you really need to pay attention to. Over 412 times in the Bible, we're commanded to listen. That's a significant spiritual discipline. It's a crucial spiritual discipline to listen. Six times Jesus says, let the one who has ears hear. And I think what Jesus is saying there is, listen up. This is important, what I'm about to say. I, I pray that as we gather around the cross this morning, and as we listen to what Jesus says as he hangs on the cross, we will we'll listen up and we'll allow what he says to be transformational in our lives. When we come to the cross, we come to holy ground, don't we? We really do. To think that Jesus, the visible image of the invisible God, the one through whom all things was made, the one before whom every knee will bow, is crucified. It's holy ground. This is love, John writes, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son on the cross as the atoning sacrifice for our sin. To think that Jesus willingly went to that cross for you and for me in our place. To think that Jesus endured such physical, emotional, and spiritual suffering out of love for each one of us. When we come to the cross, it's holy ground. Not only in what we see and feel, and experience, but also in what we hear. This morning, we're going to listen to Jesus speak what has been traditionally referred to as the seven last words prior to his death. The seven last words from the cross. And I pray we will listen well today. You know, in the scriptures, to listen 
is tied in with the concept of obedience. To listen is to obey. So I pray that we will, we will hear and we will obey. The first word is found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, verses 32 through 34. Reading from the New International Version. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. And when they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The first word from the cross is a prayer. Now that's not surprising. The Romans crucified thousands and thousands upon tens of thousands of people. And I'm sure many people that hung on a cross offered up some kind of a prayer. A prayer like, God help. It hurts. God, crush these people who've done this to me. Right? I'm sure those kinds of prayers were offered as people hung on a cross. I doubt if there was ever a prayer offered like the prayer we read here. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they've done. This prayer is, is different. This is a prayer of intercession. Who is Jesus interceding for? The first answer to that question is he's interceding for the Roman soldiers who have spit on him, who've flogged him, who've beaten him, who've crucified him, who've nailed him to this tree. And that in and of itself is astounding, isn't it? That that prayer is being offered for the people who are at his feet who've done this to him. Who else? Who else is Jesus praying for? The ones who mock? The ones who laugh? The ones who've gone about their day in Jerusalem that day because it's just another crucifixion? Is he praying for the high priest? And Pontius Pilate? who convicted him and sentenced him, I think we can say with confidence that Jesus is praying for all these people. And amazingly, it's a prayer of grace. It's not a prayer of condemnation. It's not a prayer of judgment. Jesus seeks the Father on the cross to forgive. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls us, He commands us as His people to love your enemies and what? Pray for those who persecute you. And here on the cross... Jesus' theology has become his biography. And that's a great goal that God has for our lives. That what we believe is lived out in our lives. Jesus lives out what he teaches and know that the church of Jesus Christ will follow the Lord's example. Who else does Jesus pray for when he says, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do? Is he praying for Mary, his mother, for John, the beloved disciple, and the others who are at the cross? Weeping? Do they need forgiven? Yes, they do. And yes, he is, just as he prays this prayer for you and for me. In Romans chapter 8, verse 34, we're told that Jesus is right now at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for us. And I'm convinced this continues to be a prayer on the lips of our Lord. Father, for, forgive him. He doesn't know what he's doing. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I believe it's a consistent prayer of Jesus on our behalf. And I'm thankful for that prayer because my greatest need is forgiveness. Your greatest need is to be forgiven. 
the greatest gift we've ever received is the gift of God's forgiveness through Jesus Christ. The greatest gift we can ever send to others is the gift of forgiveness. Who in your life needs to experience your forgiveness today? That's a good question to ask ourselves. The first focus of Jesus on the cross is to the Father for others seeking grace and mercy and forgiveness when they and we deserve it not. Listen to that. The second word from the cross is found in Luke chapter 23, verses 39 through 43. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him the second word from the cross. Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. In the early 80s, there was a man by the name of Bernard Koffenderfer. I think I'm saying that name right. He started an organization with a goal of placing a cluster of three crosses every 50 miles on either side of some 45,000 miles of interstate highway in America. Some of us might remember seeing those clusters of crosses at different times along the highway. He, he literally raised millions of dollars to do this. At one point, they had 2,000 sets of three crosses. He said he wanted to do this as a way to share the gospel. Now, you might think that was a great investment of resources, or you might say, I could see other ways to invest those millions of dollars to share the gospel. What's fascinating to me, though, was his rationale for placing three crosses instead of just one. In an interview, he said that he wanted three crosses with the center cross to focus on Christ, but the other two to remind people of two responses that we make to Jesus. The response of rejection, the response of surrender. One thief mocks and one thief prays a simple, profound prayer. Jesus, remember me. That's a great prayer. When you can't think of what to pray, pray that prayer. Jesus, remember me. You say, is that enough? It was enough for this thief, wasn't it? Because Jesus responds with these amazing words of hope and power and promise and life. He says, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. What a promise offered to every single person who prays this prayer in faith. And, and by the way, what an amazing assurance of our immediate destiny as believers upon death. Now, this isn't the new heaven and the new earth, and this isn't the final resurrection, and it's a mystery, but the reality is that when we die, today, he says, with me, paradise. That sounds amazing, doesn't it? That's an amazing promise for those who are in Christ. As I've reflected on these, these word, this word of Jesus, I'm struck by how Jesus can focus on one as he carries the sin of all. One forgotten, lonely, lost, forsaken, 
And no one would feel more forsaken than this man if he was being crucified. So when you feel forsaken, and when you feel forgotten, and when you feel lost, think of this man and imitate him. And pray, Jesus, remember me. I love Psalm 27, verse 10. Even if my mother and father forsake me, the Lord will gather me up. The Lord will gather me up. Lord Jesus, remember me. I'm also so moved by Jesus' passion to grow his family, the church, even as he hangs on the cross. Even as he hangs on the cross, he continues to live out his words that the Son of Man came to seek and to save. The Son of Man came to seek and to save. He continues to be other-centered. Think of this. You're you're being crucified. I can't imagine being so other-centered in the midst of that pain and that agony. And I admit, I confess, I'm deeply convicted when I think about that, of my lack of passion for reaching the lost, of my focus on the many while neglecting the one. Jesus has this ability to focus on the one and yet never miss the many, of my preoccupation with my own pain while ignoring the deeper suffering of others. The love of Jesus on the cross is so overwhelming that it not only draws us in, but it also convicts us, doesn't it? It convicts us. But that's a good thing, because we can allow that conviction to reshape us into people who really reflect His heart and His love. The third word of Jesus is found in John chapter 19, and I'm reading verses 25 through 27. Near the cross of Jesus stood His mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene is quite a, quite a person in Scripture. Quite a person. Quite an amazing person. I, I don't know if anybody loved Jesus as much as Mary Magdalene. It's amazing. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, John, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Again, take note of the other-centeredness of Jesus. As he hangs on the cross, he feels his mother's pain, and he seeks to relieve it. Can you relate to Jesus here? Think of the pain that Mary experienced at this moment. Think of the pain Jesus felt as he looked at his mother. Isn't it one of our greatest concerns that we might die and leave those that we love without their needs being met? As we age, that's something you think about. How thankful Jesus must have been that day for John, who was at the cross, who was there. All the others had fled. I'm sure John thought, what what can I offer? I have nothing to offer. I can't change anything here. But you know what he offered? He offered his availability. He was available. Maybe that's the best gift we can give to the world. One of my great mentors in my life, Bill Iverson, who pastored in Newark, New Jersey for over 60 years, was fond of saying our responsibility is availability to Jesus Christ. Our responsibility is availability to Jesus Christ. often wondered if James, the brother of Jesus who authored the book of James, 
had this scene in mind when he wrote these words in, in James 1.27. This is true religion, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. Maybe he thought about this scene when he wrote those words. What an honor John received that day. He was granted the privilege of caring for the mother of our Lord. And what an amazing honor we're given in the body of Christ. We just participated in that as we prayed for one another. You see, at the cross, new family bonds are formed. When we linger at the cross, we begin to see our need for each other and our responsibility for each other in a much deeper way. When we linger at the cross, this is what we hear Jesus say to us. That's your sister. She's your brother. This is your family. This is my family. This is your family. Love one another. Love one another as I've loved you. Jesus transforms the cross from being an instrument of violence and punishment and destruction into a place where community is formed. New community is formed. New family bonds are made. So listen, and this is important. Particularly important in light of what we've been through the last couple of years. If there's bitterness, or there's anger, or there's jealousy, or there's division, or there's backbiting, or fractured relationships, or judgment in the body of Christ, we've not lingered at the cross enough. We've just not stayed at the cross enough. We've moved too far away. Because when you get close to the cross, Jesus says, forgive one another. Love one another. Work past this division for the sake of the gospel. One of the church fathers was fond of saying, we need to live our lives in the shadow of the cross. I like that. Live our lives in the shadow of the cross. The fourth word of Jesus, Matthew 27, verses 45 through 46. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. And about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, and this is in Aramaic, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 3 p.m., this is the time when the lamb is being brought into the temple for the daily sacrifice of sin. And at that exact moment, on the cross, Jesus, the lamb of God, is being sacrificed for the sin of the world. This is one of the only times in Scripture where we have the words of Jesus in Aramaic, in, in the, the language he spoke, as if to say, this is so important, this is so sacred, here are his very words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The first thing we see in these words is that they are a quote from Scripture. Psalm 22, verse 1. At his lowest point, Jesus reaches for the word that he's memorized. But this is a question, isn't it? We've seen the bumper sticker that says Jesus is the answer. There are no answers here. It's just an awful cry of rejection, of suffering, the depth of which we will never truly comprehend. A cry of utter abandonment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Did, as the late Billy Graham once said, did God somehow, the Father, banish Jesus from his presence at this moment? Let me wrap our heads around that. Is this where 
Jesus, who for eternity existed in complete, joyful tri-unity in the Godhead, was somehow experienced somehow a separation of some kind from his Father? Is this the hell experience of Jesus? Is this the moment when God's holy justice towards sin and God's amazing grace towards sinners meets in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross? Is this where Jesus bore the full weight of my sin and yours and all the evil and all the hatred and all the suffering in this world at this moment? You know, I've I've wondered this. I've wondered if the answer to the question Jesus asked was the Father showing him my face in Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here's why. So that they don't have to be forsaken. The Apostle Paul writes these words in 2 Corinthians 5 that are familiar that should drive us to our knees. God, the Father, made him Jesus, who knew nothing of sin, to actually be made sin in our place so that we might be made right with the righteousness of God. I have one more thought as I reflect on this word of Jesus. When you feel abandoned, and we all feel that way at times, when you feel there's no answers, this reminds us that there is one who understands exactly what you're feeling, who's been there and who is there with you and who teaches us, even in those moments when we feel forsaken, to still cry out, my God, my God, you're mine. Even in the midst of this sense of forsakenness, I cling to you. The fifth word of Jesus from the cross is found in John chapter 19, verses 28 and 29. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that Scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I thirst. The jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. I thirst. The fifth word of Jesus. Why is this here? Well, one reason is because it reveals the full humanity of who Jesus is. The full humanity. You know, the church battled for centuries the heresy that Jesus didn't die a physical death on the cross. He died a spiritual death was what was being taught by so many people. They battled that. The church landed on the fact that Jesus died physically. He suffered. He thirsted. He died a physical death. Dead and buried. A real body. But is it not possible that these words reveal even more, maybe even take us into the very heart of God. Think about it. What did Jesus thirst for when he walked this earth? In John 4, he said, my food is what? Remember, the disciples come and they bring him food. My food, like the woman, the Samaritan, by the well, is to do the will of him who sent me. My food, I thirst to do the will of my Father. On the cross, Jesus thirsts for forgiveness for us. He thirsts for reconciliation for the lost with the thief. He thirsts for real community for broken-hearted people. He thirsts for the Father. My God, my God, and here I believe He thirsts for us. Mother Teresa, the late Mother Teresa, was fond of saying that He thirsts for our love. 
who thirsts for our love. Theologian Stanley Hauerwas in his book, The Cross-Shattered Christ, says the thirst of the Son through the Spirit is nothing less than the Father's thirst for us. And then he says this line, God desires us to desire God. Wow. God desires us to desire God. We were made to thirst for God. Jesus is forsaken so that we don't have to be So let me ask you this morning, do you thirst for Him the way He thirsts for you? That's a good question. And if you don't, ask Him to make you thirsty. Often, He'll use suffering to do that. That can be a good thing if it makes me thirsty for Him. Like the deer pants, streams of water daily, so my soul thirsts for you. Do you thirst for Him? The sixth word in John 19, verse 30. When He had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, He bowed His head and He gave up His spirit. Now this this phrase, it is finished, in the Greek is, is one word. It's one word, and as an English translation, it it captures only part of the meaning when we say it is finished. It it, it captures the part that focuses on completion. But this really is an announcement. This is a a victorious announcement. It is finished. And, And it communicates triumphant accomplishment. In John 17, Jesus prays, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you've given me to do. So Jesus cries, it's finished. It's completed, it's accomplished. What's fulfilled, what's accomplished, what's completed, what's finished here? We use, we use big theological concepts like justification and redemption and propitiation, and we could spend a lot of time talking about what all of those mean. All somehow to say that in his death, we are granted life. That somehow through this death, we are granted life. In trusting in Jesus Christ and his finished work, His finished work on the cross. We cross over from death to life, abundant and eternal. Luther wrote this great statement called, he called it the greatest, was the title of it. And he uses John 3.16. God, the greatest lover, so loved the greatest degree, the world, the greatest company, that he gave the greatest act, his only begotten son, the greatest gift, that whosoever, the greatest invitation, Believeth the greatest simplicity in him, the greatest person, should not perish the greatest promise, but the greatest difference have the greatest certainty, eternal life, the greatest possession. That's beautiful. The greatest. What's finished here on the cross is our striving after forgiveness, our striving after God are striving after salvation. We don't have to strive anymore because God Himself has bridged the gap with a cross. There's nothing to do. It's been done. There's nothing to do. It's been done. The gift has been given. Our response is to receive and rejoice and share and live into this amazing salvation. 
Is it finished for you? Is it finished for you today? Have you received what Jesus Christ has done for you? If not, there's no better day than to pray, Lord Jesus, remember me today. I praise God it's finished for me. And for those who have prayed this prayer, who've received this gift of life through Jesus Christ, can I encourage you, because I see this so much in the body of Christ, to really believe that it's finished and to rest in that and to, to live into this freedom that Christ has offered each one of us in Him. To really live into that because it's finished. He's accomplished it. Now we receive and we live into this and we, we, we work through this process of holiness with joy. The final word from the cross is found in Luke chapter 23, verse 46. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, Abba, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. His final words of Jesus are from Psalm 31, verse 5. The last words of Jesus before his death was from a text of Scripture that he had committed to memory. Now I see you have a goal to do some memory of Scripture. If there was ever a call for you and I to read and memorize Scripture, here it is, Jesus on the cross. As I've meditated on these final words of Jesus, here are three reflections I've had. Here's the first. The sense of total trust Jesus expresses here. Just absolute trust. Secondly, the sense of complete contentment. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And thirdly, the unconditional relinquishment of self into the hands of God. He just relinquishes himself into the hands of the Father. Father, Abba, that's a statement of trust. I trust you totally, Abba, Father. Therefore, into your hands, and that's the site of complete contentment, is there a better place to be than in the hands of the Father? No. I commit my spirit. That's unconditional relinquishment into the hands of the Father. And here's some really good news. Because of the cross, you and I can pray this prayer with confidence too. It's a great prayer to start your day and end your day. Get up in the morning and say, Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit today. When you lie down at night, Father, into your hands I commit my life, my spirit. And we can pray this prayer with confidence and with trust and experience contentment because of what Jesus Christ has done for us on Calvary. Fleming Rutledge, in her book on the words from the cross, says this about this particular word. So in this last saying from the cross, Luke is teaching us how to die and how to live. Because we, by faith, are assimilated to Christ in his death, we're also assimilated to him in his life beyond death. In his suffering, we find our redemption. In his abandonment, we find our acceptance. In his dereliction, we find our salvation. And at last, we are able to say, even in the midst of doubt and perplexity, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, even as the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has Brian Chappell, pastor, tells this story, true story of something that happened in his hometown. Maybe you've heard this. Palestine. His two brothers were playing on the sandbank by the river. And one ran after another up a large mound of sand. And unfortunately, the mound was not solid. And the weight of it caused it, them to sink in quickly in the sand. And when the boys did not return home for dinner, 
the family and neighbors organized a search. And they found the younger brother unconscious with his head and shoulders sticking out above the sand. And when they cleared the sand to his waist, he kind of awakened. And the searcher said, where's your brother? And he said, I'm standing on his shoulders. I'm standing on his shoulders. Jesus is our elder brother who is on the cross is the foundation of our freedom as one of the most repeated commands in scripture is listen I pray as we move through these last couple of weeks when we enter into Holy Week may what we see and experience and hear remind us that as followers of Jesus we have received so much. And we are called to be people of the cross. We are called to be people of the cross. Jesus calls us to take up our cross and follow. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. The cross isn't just a symbol. It's not just a symbol of our faith. It marks our lives as disciples. It marks our lives. We are to live cruciform lives. Lives shaped by the cross. And I pray these words of Jesus will help shape us into people of the cross. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we cannot thank you enough for what you have done for us. I, I pray that for myself first and for each of us that we would just overflow with gratitude. With gratitude for what you've done. Lord, as we listen to you, as we listen to you speak from the cross, it, it changes me. I pray it would change us. Convict us. Draw us to yourself, to your heart. Transform us more and more into people who live in the shadow of the cross. Make us Christ-like. Mold us into people who are marked by limitless mercy and deep compassion and extravagant forgiveness love of enemies, costly reconciliation. Make us agents of reconciliation and healing and wholeness, Lord. And help us to thirst for you. Thirst for the kingdom to come and your will to be done. Lord, we trust you. We love you. Into your hands we commit our lives, our church, our future, our present. We pray all of this in the majestic name of Jesus Christ, our Lord our Savior, our Teacher, and our Friend.